The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. So I'm delighted to welcome uh, William McQuillan to today's episode. William is a founding partner at Frontline Ventures. Uh, Frontline invests in ambitious B2B ventures throughout Europe and the States. They specialize in helping portfolio companies expand across the Atlantic. The Frontline portfolio includes recent investments like Lattice, Evervault, and uh, Qualio. So uh, William, a very warm welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Nice to be on the podcast. So, William, you were the first VC, or Frontline was the first VC to implement a platform. How exactly does your platform work? Um, what does it enable Frontline to do that other VCs without a platform can't do or can't do as easily as you? Not to claim too much credit. I think we were the first in Europe. There were definitely some in the US that we had seen doing it first, but definitely we were the first to bring the concept of platform to Europe. The way we think about platform is if you look at the traditional vanilla VC model, you know, I invest in you, Gary, you have 100% of my time. Then I invest in Sarah, then Paul, then Claire. And, and suddenly, you know, we have Frontline, for example, has 50-something portfolio, 60-something portfolio companies now. And, uh, you know, each of those companies would get a 60th of our time. And what that kind of the traditional VC model is inherently relatively unscalable when it comes to the time and value add you can give. The platform model is where you're constantly looking for ways to scale that value, value add. And the key thing that we believe that's scalable is, is the kind of the peer-to-peer learning across our portfolio. So in the kind of the same model I told you where it's, you know, invest in you and then Claire and then Peter and et cetera, et cetera. While the, our time gets reduced with each company, if we create a model where those portfolio founders are sharing and supporting each other where we're constantly learning from the different mistakes or successes that they have and sharing that with the portfolio, whether that's through content, events, peer-to-peer learning. And suddenly it becomes very scalable because it gets to the point now where any new founder that enter our, our, enters our portfolio, we have, again, 60 plus companies, over 130 founders across those companies. There's almost no challenge a new company entering our portfolio is going to face that one of our, uh, our, our founders hasn't had to face before in their current or previous companies. And so that's kind of the, the thesis behind the kind of the community or platform model of value add. You know, people like First Round and True Ventures in the US were two of the kind of real champions of this in the States. And we wanted to be one of the funds to really bring that to Europe to try and add value in a, in a more scalable way. How that's kind of translated, that was eight years ago when we started Frontline. I think now platform has become table stakes for most VCs in Europe, it, at least to have some element of platform or, or value add uh, beyond just the, the partner's time. And um, how Frontline sees it is, you know, one of the areas we particularly specialize in is, is uh, a lot of our portfolio have expanded into the US from the seed stage. We help a lot of our early stage companies expand now into the US from the learnings we've had from that. I think that we also do a, a number of events throughout the year, plus one very large event where we bring our founders together and it just it's all about peer-to-peer learning from each other. And we, you know, that's really, really successful. I think one of the things that we've done that I haven't heard too many VCs doing, but I think a lot of VCs, I would recommend them to do it, is we track all of the things that we think add value to our portfolio companies. And once every 12 to 18 months, we sit down with those companies and we say to them, here are all the things we think we've done that add value. And that can range from you know an introduction to a customer, helping with a hire or an introduction to a potential 
recruit to uh, you know fundraising support, board time, etc. And we asked the founders to then rate how valuable they thought each of those were. And we know internally how much time we spent on each of those things. And then we look at you know what are the things that we spent the most and least time on, and how did they correlate to high value versus low value. And, uh, and over time, that allows us to constantly evolve the things that we do to add value in our platform team. And we have a, a, a team of three people working on platform and, and they take that feedback on and it allows us to constantly, I guess, improve the way we add value. One actually very good example, and which you know, I'm sure you, you will like to hear, is one of the early pieces of feedback we got was that founders in general did not value that highly us supporting them on recruitment. And that was something that we spent an enormous amount of time on. And it is an extremely time-consuming thing, as I'm sure you're aware. And it's something that you can get much better at, obviously, if you do it a lot. But from our perspective, we're definitely not specialists in recruiting. We were spending a lot of time helping our portfolio hire people from you know, senior to junior levels. And yet, when we were asking our founders how, they, how much they rated that, they rated it very lowly. In fact, they rated it uh, the same amount as if we had introduced them to a recruiter who helped them hire. And that was what surprised us. And so now, you know, we just generally have the policy that unless it's in our direct network, we don't spend a huge amount of time trying to help our founders hire people. What we do instead is try to understand who are the top recruiters for different areas and different geographies so that when our founders know that, and when the founders need a different hire, we can say, look, here are some people to talk to. They still rate that as highly as if we had helped them hire the person themselves, even though technically they're, they're paying for that to the recruiters, not, not to us. And yet, you know, it saves us an enormous amount of time. So I think that's the sort of kind of learning that we try to do with platforms to always be learning and building on it. Has anything else surprised you about the feedback you've had from the data on the platform? When we started, we knew that the founders would learn a lot from each other. We were surprised at how highly they rated building relationships with each other. And I think it because it goes beyond just direct, can you help me design a marketing strategy for the US or can you help me with X or Y? I think a lot of it's also about support. You know, when you're the CEO or the founders of these companies, a lot of the time you don't have peers to kind of bounce back in. You're always at the top. You're reporting to the board. You're reporting to your portfolio. You're reporting to your investors. Uh, sorry, your like, employees. You're reporting to your investors. And so actually having this network of entrepreneurs that they can lean on, that they can kind of shoot back and forth ideas on or, or stresses or not, I think that's actually incredibly valuable. It's something that we, we knew would be valuable, but not to the extent that how valuable the founders actually rate it. Now, when we, we last spoke, you mentioned that diversity is really important to you and to Frontline. Is that a moral standpoint or is that driven by investment and by market perspectives? Well, I think as, as a starting point, it's hard not to have some element of moral standpoint to it. When you look at the numbers, they're really pretty shocking. I mean, I don't have all the numbers for every different type of minority or diversity off the top of my head, but you know, the, the British Business Bank, I think it was a year or two ago, did some research into this. And I mean, the stats were, were pretty shocking. It was like, I think 11p on the pound went to female founded, female founded companies. And that's not, that's just if one of the founders happened to be a woman, only 11 of the pound, 11p of the pound. And only, I think it's one or 2p went to a company that had all female founders. And so, you know, it, I think it's, it's very hard to look at the statistics and not want to take a moral stance against that. On the, on the flip side of it, you know, there's a lot of research continually coming out showing that diversity in teams uh, in general leads to better outcomes. Diversity at boards leads to better outcomes, you know, and that's at the kind of the public level, at the startup level. And so I think that you're very foolish to specifically try and narrow who, who you can target. And in Frontline, you know, we want to invest in the best entrepreneurs, building companies uh, for, for businesses, updating technology for businesses. 
and that can come from any background, any person. And, and we want to make sure that we as a fund are able to not only find those companies, but that those entrepreneurs want to work with us. And to do that, there's a lot of different structural things you need to do as a fund or as an industry to, to make sure that that happens. So what specifically are you doing to improve your diversity credentials? Before I, I start maybe pitching the things that we're doing, I'll also maybe take a step back and say that, you know, when, uh, when we first started to think about what we could do in this space, you know, we very much had a good look in the mirror. And, you know, we have four general partners who are all Irish, male, white, college educated. And so you know, two of which were called William. So maybe we don't even have name diversity. <laughs> so, you know, realistically, we are acutely aware that our fund represents a lot of not necessarily the problems of the industry, but it's definitely reflective that the industry is not diverse. And so, so I think we approached it in two different ways. For, first of all, we looked at our own team and we said, you know, as four partners who are, you know, relatively similar, how can we change that? And, you know, we didn't have any plans to add to that partnership in the short term. And so, you know, I started looking at well, what are short term ways that we can at least improve the team. So the first thing I looked into was if our partnership is not going to get more diverse in the short term, what can we do to, to make them more diverse, at least in thinking? And so I worked with a company called Fearless Futures and also Diversity VC to, to help design a kind of an unconscious bias, diversity and inclusion training course specifically designed for VCs. All of our partners took that course. And then we decided actually to kind of more open that out. And, and we invited um, uh, we invited other funds to bring their partners and try and hopefully make lots of people slightly more open-minded or, or at least more aware of their unconscious biases. And I think, you know, it was really surprising to me, not, not only how much I learned from those different sessions, but how much I saw every other VC of all different backgrounds learning about their unconscious biases. Everyone, no matter what your background is, has unconscious biases. And those unconscious biases affect your decisions on a daily basis. I think that was one of the first things is kind of from a top-down level. And we wanted to try and figure out how the top of venture capital is slow to change because of the way general partnerships and the long length of time that people last as a partner. So how do we make the people who are slow to change at least more open-minded and more conscious of their unconscious biases? The second thing we tried to look at is more from an industry perspective. So it's very hard to change a problem if you're not able to track it and measure it. And so about four or five years, I think it was five years ago now, we started tracking gender and ethnicity in our deal flow. I think we were one of the very first VC funds in Europe. There may be some others. I know Atomico uh, have been doing it for a long time, but I think we're one of the very first ones in Europe to start tracking ethnicity and gender in our deal flow. And, uh, and you know, initially, if you'd asked me before we started measuring it, roughly what percentage of female founders we see, I'd have probably said something around 15, 20%. When we started measuring it, it was between 6 and 8%. And that was consistently over a six, seven month period. And so we realized again, that when you start to measure things, you realize how big a problem it is. And so we started to look at ways of how we could improve the deal flow to make sure that we were not uh, missing really great uh, female entrepreneurs who are building companies since we're seeing such a small percentage. So that involved a, a number of different things that we, were te- we tested out over the last few years. So that involved, you know, uh, we've done a, a lot of different open office hours for, for, for different minority founders. We have supported accelerators that were targeting minority founders. When we changed our branding, we specifically ordered a number of people to look at it to make sure it wasn't focused on a particular way, one way or the other. When we uh, post different content, we make sure that it's not targeting one gender or not, or one minority, or or not triggering different things that might be in, in, uh, affecting certain minorities. We did a bunch of these small things. And you know, it was incredible that uh, very quickly it started. We started to see as we did different things, just a consistent improvement in our 
in the percentages of, of companies that we saw, both not just uh, in our pipeline, but also coming into our portfolio. And so, you know, if I look at the last uh, year and a half, consistently we've been between, uh, you know, on a low month is 20%, but often now 25, 27% of the companies we see are female founded, for example. I don't have the, the ethnicity, ethnicity stats off the top of my head, but at least from a gender perspective, it's tripled to quadrupled uh, in the last few years since we started measuring this and started to try and do things actively to change that. It's still a long way from anywhere being parity, but, um, but you know, I hear a lot of VCs talking about how you know, the problem is in the deal flow, um, i.e. they just don't see enough, and that's why there's not enough of their investments are representative of the population or, or a gender, more gender kind of diversified. And actual fact, you know, I feel like we have proven that with relatively small effort, you can substantially improve what you're seeing in your in your pipeline. A lot of the issues with diversity stem from the top. So if you have investors, LPs who are typically 40, 50-year-old white male, then you end up with VCs who are 40, 50-year-old. I think you're a bit younger than that, but white male. And then you end up with portfolio companies that you invest in you know, reflecting again that same diverse or lack of diverse mix. So surely one of the best ways of having a more diverse portfolio would be for you to hire, okay, not a partner level, because you said you're going to stay the four of you, but the next level down to build out your team, analysts, interns, um, associates, etc., to start hiring more diverse people in those roles. I personally don't believe in the concept of saying we have to hire somebody of diversity. Uh, I think there's lots of statistics to show that that does not work and actually makes a lot of people judge that person negatively and, and especially if people know that that's what you're doing and that, you know, that particularly there's a lot of studies around U.S. college admissions around that. I think what we are definitely pro on is making sure that in the, the final candidates that there are people of a high, like equally high caliber that represent diverse backgrounds. So, you know, we make sure that the final, let's say, depending on the, the role specifically, but the final five to 10 people for any candidate role in frontline that we hire are of diverse backgrounds and are diverse compared to our team in the industry. You know, I think that's a far better approach. And, and, and that's, that's the way we do it. It doesn't mean that we will then hire a woman or someone who is more diverse than necessarily myself or, or others in the team, but it means that we're substantially more likely to. Now, what that requires us to do is spend a lot more time in the recruitment process. But, you know, from our perspective, if that helps us build a more diverse team, then that is more than worth it. And, you know, with regards to our team, although the four general partners are men, you know, quite a number of our more recent hires are more diverse. You know, we just added our first female into the investment team. Our CFO is a woman. Our head of platform is a woman. Our head of content is a woman. Our head of legal is a woman. Again, there's still a long way to go for both frontline and the entire industry, but I hope that in a number of years, it's a lot less of a problem, but still a long way to go. So moving on from that, you invest substantially in pre-product and pre-revenue B2B SaaS businesses, or at least you do in one of your funds. You're running two funds now, one's more mature, but in the seed fund. So I come across a lot of VCs in Europe who actually seem to be quite risk averse, which is quite ironic since we have the name venture capital. What exactly do you look for in companies who have no product and no revenue credentials? And, and maybe just for a little bit of extra context for people who are listening who don't know as much about Frontline, we have two different strategies. We have a growth fund and a seed fund. Our growth fund targets you know, series B, C, and D, late stage companies in the US that are expanding to Europe. 
and our seed fund targets some of the kind of the top up and coming companies in Europe that are more at the pre-seed and seed stage. And, and you know, over the last eight years, what that's meant at our seed fund level is 50% of our investments are pre-product, 80% are pre-revenue. So you know, when Frontline says early, we really mean that we invest early. To answer your question, when it comes to what do we look for, realistically, since 80% of our companies don't have revenue, there is no traction per se. And I would say the majority of investors that I know in Europe, they look the first thing they're asking about is traction. You know, what's the revenue figures? What's the user metrics? What's the customer account? And, and you know, that, you know, 80% of the companies that we've invested in have zero. There is none of that. And so what that means is that we need to, uh, we look at companies maybe quite differently to the way uh, many other VCs in Europe do. It means that we have to be a lot more conviction-based. Since there isn't evidence, we have to then look at the team, we have to look at the market. And those are the really two key areas. I'd say when it comes to the market, that's really about making sure, I mean, I don't want to repeat silly things that are obvious maybe, but you know, we want to make sure that there's a big enough market that you're not going to something that's incredibly competitive and that effectively we believe that people can, with this product that they plan to build, that it's solving a problem for that market. When it comes to the team, that's where the majority of our decisioning comes from, I guess, at the pre-seed in particular stage, because that's really almost all that there is. And you know, what do we look for? Entrepreneurs that are hugely ambitious. That sounds like an obvious thing, but you know, realistically, it is so easy for an entrepreneur to accept an offer for their company when someone wants to buy it for 10 million, 20 million, 40 million, 80 million. And you know, they sell a company for 20 to 80 million. You know, those entrepreneurs will usually make more money than anyone would need to have an incredibly luxurious lifestyle for not just themselves, but for their kids and their kids' kids, and maybe even further if they invested that well as well. And so like realistically, we're looking for people who it's not about just, it's not just about the money. If they really want to build something huge, they want to really want to change something, but they're incredibly passionate about why they're doing this, about what they're trying to change or build. And so that they actually believe that they can keep building something bigger. So that sounds like an obvious thing. VCs say it a lot, but you know, when you really start to think about it, when you really sit down and talk to an entrepreneur and say, okay, look, 15 million, would you just take that offer? You know, a lot of them would. Um, and we're looking for people who that's not the point. That's not what they're thinking. They're not thinking about money. They're thinking about building. You know, a, a common question I'll always ask entrepreneurs is, you know, what's success for you? And you'd be so surprised how many of them start talking about numbers where they say, you know, I want to make this or I want to sell my company for this or whatever. And that immediately tells me that they're not focused on building a company. They're focused on making money or, or getting it's a big red flag for you. Yeah, very, very much so. You know, I touched slightly there. Passion is really important. Again, when you're building a company, particularly at the early stages, everything goes wrong. So many of your assumptions will change and you just constantly have to be running through brick walls and you have to be incredibly passionate about what you're doing. You know, if you're just doing this because you kind of wanted to start a startup or if you're doing this because you, you know, you think it's a good proposition or a good business idea, realistically, once you start hitting a few of those walls, it'll tire you out really quickly if you're not passionate about what you're doing, if you don't care about what you're doing. And so we look for people who really care and are passionate about it because those people are the ones who are going to keep running through those walls because it's just, it's hard to start a company. And then I think that maybe the third thing that we really look for that's important is self-awareness. This is probably one that VCs don't talk about as much, but we in Frontline rate extremely highly. So you know, the, the simple way of thinking about it is when you start a company, you actually don't need that much self-awareness because you're doing everything. Once you raise a C round and a Series A round and suddenly you get more than 20 plus employees, what starts to happen is people who have, I mean, effectively for listeners who are maybe not as aware of self-awareness, self-awareness is basically the concept of understanding who you are, what you're good at, and also more importantly, what you're not good at. 
And people who have poor self-awareness tend to hire people more like themselves and they tend to hire and they tend to micromanage and not delegate. Whereas people who have very strong self-awareness hire people who complement them rather than who are like them. And they are very happy to empower their employees and give them the kind of the, I guess, the power to kind of grow in their roles. And so what you start to see is in between series A and series B, as the kind of companies grow, people who have poor self-awareness, their teams just really start to crack. And so one of the really important things for us is that we want founders who, who have that level of self-awareness. And then maybe the final thing is just you need people who can be leaders. You know, when you are building a company, you need to convince investors around you about why this is such an incredible thing to keep funding your company should you need more funding. You also need to employ, you need to convince incredible employees. You know, I'm sure you know, as somebody who, who works with talent, that it makes your job so much easier when you have an incredible founder or CEO who can inspire those hires. From that perspective, you know, when we invest in people who, who are able to inspire people, who are able to be great leaders, it means that our job to help them get follow-on funding, to help them hire great people is you know, 10 times easier. And so those are probably, if I had to pick four uh, things off the top of my head, those are probably the things that I think we focus on when it comes to looking for people. So, you know, probably, and I'd say in frontline, different partners put different weightings on team and market. I'd say for myself, I'm probably about 70% of my decision is on the team, but 30% is on the market. Yeah, I agree with you on that point about inspiration and passion in terms of you know, the CEO and the founding team. That's absolutely crucial. Sometimes you can get a bit carried away with that, though. I think we work is a case in point where the leader was absolutely inspirational. But there were a few issues behind that that maybe weren't so apparent at the beginning. Yeah, I don't think you should ever have blind faith in any leader. I think that there are some great examples in companies that have you know, partially blown up. Or I mean, the founder in WeWork did very well for himself. So I don't know whether he would consider that a failure. But And WeWork is still a very large company. But you know, another example would be Theranos, which is obviously very well documented and, and how just people kept investing and not doing due diligence. They just believed so strongly in Elizabeth Holmes. And, and there are examples of that. And there are definitely times where I meet, meet entrepreneurs who I think are incredibly convincing. You know, that's why Frontline... Although we are an early stage investor, we still do due diligence. We still like to understand what they're doing, why they're doing it. Does it actually make sense? I think there's a lot of investors who don't always do that. But you know, that's a different style of investing, maybe. What's the worst investment pitch that you've ever endured, William? The worst investment pitch? I heard about a pitch you endured from someone who rented your Airbnb apartment. Oh, yeah. I mean, sorry. So I guess maybe as a starting point to answer your question. The reason why I hesitated was I don't, nothing jumps to mind as far as, you know, worst in that I just thought this is such a terrible idea. How are you so stupid to think of this? You know, I think shows like The Dragon's Den sometimes make it out like there are the crazy people starting companies everywhere with silly lunatic ideas. In, in reality, the vast majority, vast, vast majority of companies are, you know, decent people who are going after interesting ideas with, you know, a, a bunch of unknowns. And so, you know, um, the majority of pitches are, you know, they, they don't stand out, but they they also, for good or bad reasons. With regards to kind of maybe some of the weirder pitches I've had, I definitely did have one. I used to, early on when we had started Frontline, I used to have a three-bedroom house that I shared with two friends of mine in Marlebone and, and uh, in London. And one of the friends had to basically move away for three months for a work thing. And so we decided rather than trying to rent it for three months to one person, we would just try airbnb it. 
and, and it worked actually really well. We met some really lovely people and, and it more than covered the rent that was kind of missing for the person being gone. So that, that was great. But what one of the weirder incidents was that one day this guy arrived and he had booked to stay for four or five days. And he arrived at the door with a very small little rucksack. And I was conscious thinking as I ent- as he enters, you know, it's, he hasn't taken much for four or five days stay in London. Anyway, I show him his bedroom, show him around quickly. And I go into kind of into the sitting room, just open up my laptop, I'm working away on it. And he comes in the room to me and he's like, um, William, I know this is going to sound really weird, but I actually live in London. Now, as soon as he said this, I'm thinking, that's weird. Is this guy about to kill me or murder me or something? And, and he said, you know, I, I saw, I was looking for an Airbnb for a friend of mine in London. And then I saw your name on the Airbnb and I realized, oh, that you're also an investor. So I thought I would just come and stay with you for four or five days and tell you all about my company, which I definitely say is, uh, I'm a relatively transparent, open-minded person, but it was definitely, it felt like an invasion of privacy. There's definitely a film script in this, some kind of horror movie. You can expand this on, but carry on. Yeah. I mean, you know, one, one funny thing about it was that the startup idea was a men's underwear brand, which Frontline don't even, we don't invest in consumer brands and we don't invest in non-tech companies. I guess he was going to plan to do it e-commerce-wise, but uh, you know, he hadn't even looked at our website to see what we do. He had just seen that I was an investor. And so anyway, we, we, we refunded him and, and uh, he did not stay the night. That, that's what it, I mean, we had one guy who, uh, thankfully not for me, but for one of our other partners, there was a guy who consistently waited outside our Dublin office for like a, a week or two every day, just waiting for him to leave or go get lunch to try and talk to him. You know, there definitely are some people who are, I mean, look, one person might, say it's determined. Uh, other people might say it's you know, an invasion of privacy. There are plenty of stories of entrepreneurs who do crazy things and get funding. So yeah, it's hard to know. You know if I, when I was raising money, I was definitely very determined. I don't think I entered anyone's home without telling them the reason for me being there. But, um, but yeah, I mean, look, we, we look for entrepreneurs who are determined, but you know, maybe, maybe don't enter our homes without telling us properly. Sounds like you escaped by the seat of your pants there, William. anyway it's been fabulous having you on the show today explaining about some uh some of the weird and wonderful people you've met during your career as a as a vc i wish you and the team and the portfolio huge success over the coming years and uh, maybe we'll have you back on in uh in another 12 months hear how the portfolio has evolved in the meantime great thanks so much gary appreciate your time as well This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent. 